Power in the Blood. A John Jordan Mystery, Book One, by Michael Lister. Performed by Kyle Tate. Michael Connolly, Introduction. It's hard to write a book. You have to keep so many plates spinning on sticks. You've got the plot. You've got the place you are writing about. You've got the what happens next plate that can never wobble. You've got the momentum plate. You've got the humor plate. And the compassion plate. And I could go on and on. You've got the need to blend all of these things together into one act and keep them spinning, always spinning. Oh, and did I mention that you were holding all of these sticks up and spinning all of these plates while walking on a tightrope? No, wait, walking would be too easy. Change that. You were actually riding a tricycle on a tightrope. Yes, it's a major high-wire act, fraught with danger and failure, and that wire is the most important part of the whole thing. That high wire is character. And the whole thing comes crashing down, plates and all, if you don't have it right. If that wire is not taut and reliable and secure. If that character is not one for the ages. Now, with all of that, think about getting back on that high wire with the same character time and time again. Six shows a week and two on Sunday. It is not for the faint of heart, I can tell you that. It is hard to do it once. It is harder to do it time and time again. And that's what writing a book series is like. And that is what Michael Lister has done for 20 years with the character of John Jordan. And what he has been able to do for 20 years with his own muse. Not just sustain. Not just keep his balance on the wire. Not just go back to the well again and again. He has filled the well. He has expanded the boundaries of what he does with character. He has gotten better. He has somehow been able to find within him the inspiration to get back on the wire and do it again, only better. It may be that the challenge and accomplishment of this can only be fully known and understood by the one who does it. No matter. Take my word for it. Michael Lister has become a master storyteller in his first 20 years and he's only getting started. Michael Connolly, January 2017. A note about setting. Note, this novel is set in the mid-90s, and the cell phone and video camera technology, or lack thereof, reflects that time. One. I was standing at the gate of Potter Correctional Institution, staring at him, when he was killed. Waiting to be buzzed into the pedestrian sally port, my view slightly impaired by the chain-link fence and razor wire, I was gazing into the back of a trash truck. The hot July sun reflected off the razors like the mirrored shades of a redneck police chief, waves of heat dancing through circles of steel, and the air was thick and difficult to breathe. The clear blue cloudless sky offered no shelter from the sun's assault, nor any promise of rain for the parched planet beneath my feet. I had no idea what I was witnessing at the time. A murder? An accident? A suicide? At first, all I could see was a young correctional officer with a bad complexion and wide hips standing on the back of a white Ford flatbed pickup truck 
thrusting a long metal rod into the trash bags piled on it. His hips were so wide and strangely shaped, it looked like he was wearing football pants with full pads. Sweat poured off his face, and his light brown uniform was soaked through. It wasn't the young officer's odd appearance, but the enthusiasm with which he executed his task that caught my attention. I was awestruck by the violent blows each bag received. Obviously, there were more effective and efficient ways to search the trash before it was removed from the institution, which meant the manner in which he was doing it was a warning to all the inmates looking on as much as it was any kind of actual hunt for an inmate trying to escape. Like a prehistoric sign language or an antiquated form of Morse code, every violent stab was a character of communication. Taken together, they sent out a concise message for all who had the eyes to see. Attempting to escape PCI in the back of a trash truck was a bad idea. Even though inmates were sometimes treated like trash, and at times acted like trash, they were not going to escape by pretending to be trash. What a strange, surreal, little claustrophobic world I was entering. It wasn't that I didn't understand the need for a certain type of security. I did. And I knew an officer had to check every vehicle and everything in those vehicles before they left the institution. Recalling just one of the many real-life horror stories of escaped inmates recited during my recent new employee orientation was more than enough to convince me of that. But I couldn't help but believe that the excessiveness expressed in this particular brutal method of searching the trash contributed to the violent and essentially inhumane environment of this secret and closed society. Preparing to stab the final bag in the center of the truck, the officer stumbled over the outer ones and hovered above it. Raising the weapon above his head, he brought it down with a force far more incredible than even the others had been. But this time, when the rod entered the bag, there was a deep thump, followed by the sound similar to that of twigs caught in a lawnmower. This time, the metal implement did not return when the officer attempted to retract it. He then took another stance and yanked even harder. On his third attempt in that position, he pulled it free, ripping open the bag as he did. It was dripping with blood. At first, I thought he had stabbed a can of chocolate syrup from food services or an old oil can from maintenance. But his reaction quickly convinced me otherwise. The young officer lost all color and stumbled backward, dropping his blunt spear, and reached for his radio, only to discover that it wasn't there, something that served to make him only more frantic. I waved to the officer in the control room, who immediately buzzed me in. As I ran in, the officer on the flatbed began yelling, Oh, God! Chaplain! Chaplain! Chaplain, get out here now! Call for help! Get! His voice, which had been weak and tight and frightened, turned to pure, high-pitched hysteria. Oh, God! Oh, God! What the... Oh, shit! There's a body in the... With that, he passed out. I rushed over to the second gate that led into the vehicle sally port, and before I reached it, the control room had already buzzed it open. I ran straight through the gate, pausing on the other side only long enough to close it behind me. Heart hammering in my chest, thoughts a blur of indistinguishable images. Climbing up onto the back of the truck, 
I saw that the officer had landed on a bag of papers that had cushioned his fall. I crouched beside him, the sweat from my face dropping onto his. I could tell he was beginning to come around. My eyes moved down his body. The name tag on his shirt read, shut. His feet, covered in blood now, were still touching the last bag he had stabbed. It looked as if the entire bed of the truck, once white, was now crimson. Look at me, I said, when he first opened his eyes. Shut, don't look down, look right at me. He immediately looked down and began backpedaling away from the blood, like a sand crab avoiding an approaching tide. Blood splattered everywhere, on the bags, on him, on me. And I wondered if the red rain falling on us might contain an infection, HIV or hepatitis B, something far more likely in here than on the street. In his clumsy attempt to escape, the officer knocked me back into the bag with the body in it. As I fell, it enveloped me, and I felt warm, sticky liquid on the back of my neck and soaking through my clothes. Lurching forward, I pivoted slightly, a morbid part of me wanting to see. Lifeless black eyes staring blankly, black head hanging unnaturally. I slid forward, trying to move away. When I sat up, I noticed that one of the nurses, a tall young woman with blonde hair, had entered the sally port with us. Shut was already off the truck, moving frantically toward the gate where I had entered. The officer in the control room had the wits about her not to let him through. I quickly jumped off the truck and had to hold onto its side, as inside me all the blood seemed to drain from my head. Within seconds, officers began pouring into the sally port from the other gates. Two immediately went over to check on Shut. Another came to check on me, all of them straining to see into the back of the truck, which had taken on a surreal, slightly horrific quality. Chaplain, you okay? Captain Skipper asked. Fine, I lied, nodding. But let's get Shut to medical. He's really shaken up, and he's got blood all over him. We both need to get cleaned up. They're on the way, he said, and looked back at the truck. Damnation! How can there be so much blood? Heart must have still been pumping, I said. How did everyone respond so fast? Tower, he said, as if it were obvious. I looked fifty feet up at the tower to see the officer leaning out of the window, observing everything below, radio still in her hand. When I looked back down, I saw that the nurse had her arm around the distraught officer, talking to him reassuringly. I walked over to them. Chaplain, can you help me for a minute? The nurse asked. A delicate, pale, blue-eyed beauty. She wore more makeup than she needed. Sure, I said, glancing at her name tag. Strickland, she said, trying but unable to remove the distressed look from her late 20s face. John Jordan. I need to check on the inmate in the truck, John. Can you stay with him? Sure, I said. She turned to leave, but then turned back to shut and said, I'm so sorry, but it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. She then ran over to the truck and bravely climbed onto the back. Snapping on latex gloves, she carefully but quickly made her way to the bag with the body in it. Crouching down to check the inmate, nearly disappearing behind the bags as she did, she moved with the surety and confidence of a seasoned ER nurse. Moments later, 
The colonel and other medical personnel began to arrive. Shut and I were escorted out of the sally port and into the security building on the rear side of the control room. It was difficult to see well from this new position, but I could tell that Captain Skipper had finished ripping open the bag to discover there was nothing left to do but call the coroner. I don't know if post-mortem prayers work, but if you have one, you might want to launch it up, Colonel Patterson said when he was buzzed into the hallway of the security building where we were standing. He was a short, fat man with thick hands, bushy eyebrows, and messy hair. His uniform, which always looked sloppy, had large rings around the neck and armpits. His skin was leathery, and his neck was red. In my short time as a prison chaplain, I had met many decent, hard-working correctional officers. Colonel Patterson was not one of them. Why don't y'all come back to my office? We need to get your statements and have each one of you fill out an incident report, he said as he continued to walk down the hallway toward his office. The hallway, like all the hallways at PCI, was spotless and gleamed with the shine of a fresh coat of wax. Inmates had to have something to do. In the colonel's office, we waited while he used the phone. His office was decorated with photographs, paintings, and trophies, all related to hunting. His desk was cluttered, a thin layer of dust covering it and everything on it. The carpet needed vacuuming, and a distinct musty smell lingered in the air. Like the hallway, Colonel Patterson's office was included in the inmate's job assignment. But unlike the hallway, the room was not cleaned by them. They weren't allowed in here. Patterson hated inmates and made no attempt to hide it. Rumor was, there had never been an inmate in his office. I believed it. There were other rumors about why the colonel hated inmates, many of which sounded like war stories involving riots, gang attacks, and escape attempts, all starring the colonel himself. My theory was that the colonel just needed someone to hate, and since 65% of the inmate population was black, they made natural targets. I want the yard closed, the work crews were called, and account taken immediately, Patterson barked into his phone. Call the superintendent and ring him straight through to my office when you get him. Find Inspector Fortner and get him back to my office with some incident reports. If the colonel was upset by what had taken place, I couldn't tell. He always operated at fever pitch, always yelling orders, always coming on way too strong. I glanced over at Shut. He looked as if he'd just killed a man. His whole body, which appeared to be trapped in adolescence, trembled. You okay? I asked him, while the colonel reported to the superintendent what had happened. He didn't look up, so I repeated the question. When he finally looked at me, he appeared to be in a trance, not knowing where he was. Huh? he mumbled. His pubescent face was a mask of shock and fear. When he dropped his head again, I slid my chair over next to him. When I put my hand on his back, it actually shook him from the force of tremors running the length of his body. Colonel, Officer Shutt needs to see a doctor, I said. What? No, he doesn't. Do you, son? Son didn't respond. He just continued to stare at the floor. Call medical, now, I said, employing the colonel's method of communication. Ah, hellfire, Captain. He's been trained. He'll be all right. Call medical now, or I will. And if I do, 
I'm going to declare a medical and psychological emergency. Then you can explain to them why you didn't. The colonel snatched up the phone, pushed three buttons, and yelled into the receiver, Get medical to my office now. Hanging up the phone, he looked back at me. Chaplain, you need to get a few things straight about the way things work around here. If I wasn't leaving this afternoon, I'd take you under my wing and make things real plain for you. But the short version is this. I... A quick knock on the door was followed by the entrance of the warden, Edward Stone, a deliberate-moving black man in an expensive suit. Colonel? Chaplain? Officer Shutt? He said by way of greeting. His eyes stopped on Shutt. Have you called medical, Colonel? Yeah, they should be here any minute, he said curtly, as if he were talking to a new officer and not his boss. He's obviously in shock, Stone said. How you holding up, Chaplain? I nodded. Okay, I said, my voice quivering slightly with the anger I felt toward Patterson. Just ready to get cleaned up. I heard how you responded to the, uh, situation very well. Control said you reacted with no hesitation. You never know until it comes down to it what a man will do in those kinds of situations. I know you're new, but everybody's trust for you just jumped up several notches. Isn't that right? Colonel. Yeah, you never know what a man'll do in a crunch, he said, careful to respond to Stone's first comment, and not his second. Let's have medical check out officer shut, and let the chaplain go home. We can take their statements tomorrow. Yeah, I think that's a good idea, Patterson said, as if Stone had asked him. Before anyone could say anything else, the colonel's phone rang, and the medical personnel arrived to collect shut. I helped him to his feet, assured him everything was going to be okay, and followed him and the nurses out of the office. Just before I closed the door, I heard Patterson tell Stone that the deceased inmate in the trash bag was Ike Johnson. I then walked over to the training building and took a long, hot shower and scrubbed his blood off my body. Two. I was half undressed when my doorbell rang. I guess if I were more optimistic, I would say that I was half-dressed, and that the glass of seltzer water without a coaster on my dresser was half-full. My dresser, like every other piece of furniture that I scrambled to get after the divorce, was not worth the trouble of a coaster. It had been a gift. Actually, its previous owners did not know that it was a gift. All they knew was that they threw it out. I was surprised when I heard the doorbell, not only because I was half undressed, but also because I had placed my order for pizza less than 15 minutes before. It had always taken Sal's at least 25 minutes to deliver out here. Since coming home to North Florida after my life in Atlanta had disintegrated, I'd made my home in a dilapidated old trailer on the edge of Potter County. Quickly pulling my pants back up, I whisked by my gem of a dresser pausing only long enough to secure the two folded bills on its corner. The trailer had been repossessed, and its previous owners were obviously not a gentle breed. It was situated on a thatched grass prairie on what was supposed to be phase two of an expanding mobile home community called the Prairie Palm. Presently, phase two was a community of one, due in large part to phase one, which resembled a trailer junkyard more than a place where people actually lived. The park got its name from the lone sable palm, Florida's state tree, 
standing in the center of the 60-acre plot, something that seemed an appropriate metaphor for my isolated existence here. As I walked down the extremely narrow hall of my not-so-mobile home, passing over the pale yellow linoleum curling up so that it no longer reached the thin blonde paneling of either wall, I remembered the plush two-story brick home Susan and I had shared in North Atlanta. It was nice, very nice. But this impoverished place and the fringe existence I was now living here felt more like home. I opened the door and extended the money in one flowing motion, more from practice than a God-given talent. Expecting to see Ernie, Sal's nephew, who resembled the Sesame Street puppet of the same name, I made an audible gasp and suddenly felt naked without my shirt. Instead of Ernie, I had opened the door to a young woman with big brown eyes in an orange, white, and blue uniform, which included a pair of tight-fitting navy blue shorts and a baseball cap. She had shoulder-length brown hair pulled through the hole in the back of her cap to form a ponytail, and dark skin covering her taut, muscular little body. She looked confused as I handed her the money, but took it reflexively. I took the box from her and realized why she looked confused. It was a parcel, not a pizza. The oversized blue block letters on its side read QVC. And then I remembered. Last Friday night, while unable to sleep, I flipped past a shopping channel and did something I'd never done before. Made a purchase. This parcel contained my new IBM ThinkPad. No need for a tip, she said. Just your signature. Sorry, was expecting a pizza. She handed me the plastic pen and electronic clipboard and flashed me a quick smile. As I scrawled out my signature on the screen, I sensed her staring at the round pink scar on my left oblique and long thin white scar across my chest. When I looked up at her, she looked away. Pizza, huh? She said, seemingly just wanting to say something. In the distance, I could hear the sounds of poverty coming from phase one of Prairie Palm, people with time on their hands, and not much else. Children yelling and laughing, the revving of automobile engines, and the loud distorted music of cheap car stereos and boomboxes swirled together into the sad and badly mixed soundtrack of life in the rural South. The only artist my ears could discern was John Mellencamp, which justified the volume. Appropriately enough, it was an acoustic version of his tribute to life in a small town, I was born in a small town, and I live in a small town, probably die in a small town. Oh, those small communities. I'm sorry, I said. I should have introduced myself. I'm John Jordan. Why? she asked, her eyes narrowing. Educated in a small town. Taught to fear Jesus in a small town. Used to daydream in that small town. Another boring romantic. That's me. Why what? I asked. Why should you have introduced yourself? I'm just delivering a package. This isn't a social call. I... I thought you were having a hard time deciphering my signature. Your name is on the package, she said. Oh, yeah, I said, shaking my head and frowning. Sorry, I was just... Relax. I'm sure a man in your profession introduces himself to nearly everyone he meets, whether they want him to or not. 
What are you, a priest? Wait till I tell my friends I was hit on by a priest. At first, I couldn't figure out how she knew, but then realized my clerical collar was still hanging around my neck. But I've seen it all in a small town. Had myself a ball in a small town. Married an L.A. doll and brought her to this small town. Now she's small town, just like me. I'm the chaplain at PCI, I said, touching my collar. I make deliveries out there sometimes. Big place. No, I cannot forget where it is that I come from. I cannot forget the people who love me. Yeah, I can be myself here in this small town. And people let me be just what I want to be. She turned to head back down the rocks and pebbles and oyster shells that served as my driveway, toward the big colorful FedEx truck that matched her uniform, the blinking of its flashers rhythmic and hypnotic. I was just about to ask for her name, and maybe even her number, when Ernie sped into the driveway, jumped out of his car, and ran to my doorstep, where I was still watching her. Got nothing against a big town. Still hayseed enough to say, look who's in the big town. But my bed is in a small town. Oh, and that's good enough for me. Sorry I'm late, JJ. Uncle Sal's getting slower and slower, Ernie said. You're not late. Just a little early. He looked confused, then followed my gaze back down the driveway toward the truck she had disappeared into. When I didn't take the pizza box he was trying to shove into my hands, he said, You want the pizza or the pussy? What? I asked, digging into my pocket for the money with one hand and slapping him on top of the head with the other. I said that'll be $8.89, he said as he handed me the box. I was still feeling around in my pockets for the money when I decided to take one more glance down the driveway. She was standing in the opening on the passenger side, waving Ernie's money in the air. This one's on me, preacher, she said. I could use the tax deduction. Thanks, was all I could manage. There was a time, not so long ago, when I'd have had a nice little buzz going by this time of the day and could have come up with a better response. Ernie ran down the driveway to her truck and got the money faster than I would have thought possible. They exchanged a few words, laughed, and then she drove off. As Ernie ambled back, I walked down the driveway to meet him at his car. Well, I was born in a small town, and I can breathe in a small town. Gonna die in this small town, and that's probably where they'll bury me. Please tell me you know who that was, I said. Sure, that's Laura Mathers. Her sister Kim and me are on the July Jam Court together Friday night. This Friday night? As in three days from now? Uh-huh. But she's got a boyfriend. Ernie, they almost always do. Three. The setting sun backlit the cypress trees, outlining them with a golden-orange glow, as a gentle breeze rising from the surface of the water waved the Spanish moss draped over their twisted branches. Below, the wide Apalachicola River flowed inexorably towards the bay. I was eating my pizza in an old homemade wooden chair in my backyard, partly because I found my single-wide trailer depressing, particularly when eating alone, but mostly because I found sunset along the banks of the river, peaceful and calming, its flow spiritual in a way I couldn't fully explain. The experience was restorative, and the bloody events from earlier in the day receded some 
as if dimming into the soft focus background of a photograph with a shallow depth of field. I was about to take another sip of my cherry Dr. Pepper when I heard a noise on the far side of my trailer and turned to see two kids, a boy and a girl, on bicycles bumping through the ruddy grass toward me. The girl looked to be about 12, the boy around seven, and I could tell from the condition of their clothes and the state of their bikes that poverty was their lot in this life. I had seen them out riding their bikes in this mostly empty section of the prairie palm before, and figured they lived in the more populated phase one. Slowing, they hopped off their bikes and dropped them in the tall grass and continued toward me, all in one elegant and practiced motion that I suspected only partly had to do with their rickety hand-me-down rides, not having kickstands. You Mr. Jordan? The girl asked as they approached me. She was a skinny preteen with long arms and legs, straight blonde hair past her shoulders, and blue eyes way too sad and wise for her age. I am, I said. John. I'm Colby, and this is my little brother Cody. Both Colby and her little brother Cody were surreptitiously eyeing my pizza. How do you do? I asked. Would either of you care for a slice of Sal's Famous? I would, Cody said. He was skinny and tall like his sister, but his skin was darker and his green eyes were smaller and more intense. Unlike his sister, he was not wearing shoes, and he sniffled with a summer cold. Cody, she said, scoldingly stretching out his name. You're both welcome to some, I said. There's far more than I can eat, and I don't want to see it go to waste. You'd be doing me a favor. Please. Well, if it's just gonna go to waste, she said. Y'all drag up a chair and help yourself. Cody looked around. Just you lives back here? Just me, I said. We live over on the other side, Colby said. With our, with the guy who was with our mom. They dragged nearby homemade wooden chairs even nearer to mine but stood waiting for pizza without actually asking or reaching for it. I handed Colby the box. See if y'all can finish off the rest. I'm full. She slowly took the box. Then they both sat down a little cautiously and began to eat. This pizza is real good, Cody said. I'm glad you like it, I said. Have you ever had Sal's before? No, sir, he said as they both shook their heads. They probably didn't eat out much, or ever, and given how hungry they were acting, I wondered if they eat in much either. Y'all ever eaten at Rudy's? I asked. Yes, sir, Cody said. Once, Colby said. Sort of. Our mom worked there for a little while when we first moved here. One time when Steve went to pick her up, we rode with him, and she let us sit at the counter and have a piece of pie each while she locked up. It was good. Cody said. She stopped working there because Rudy didn't pay her what he promised, Colby said. I nodded. Think he's pretty bad about doing that, I said. How'd you know who I was? Heard some people talking about you, she said. Looked you up at the library. Looked me up? Yes, sir, I did. Old newspapers said you, that you used to be a cop, that you solved some crimes, called one of the Atlanta child murderers, and killed the stone-cold killer. Old newspapers said all that? 
When I was 12 years old and on vacation with my family in Atlanta, I encountered the Atlanta child murderer at the Omni Hotel. Six years later, I moved to Atlanta for college and to work the case. Eventually, I became a member of the Stone Mountain Police Department and worked the Stone Cold Killer case, too. And though I worked other cases, none had the notoriety nor left the scars those two did. Thing is, she said, our mom is missing, and we want to hire you to find her. Will you? Cody asked. Will you help us find our mama, mister? I'll mow your grass all summer, and she'll clean your trailer and cook for you. Please, we're good, hard workers. Four. Later that night, I met Kimmy at the sports oasis. Kimmy, sometimes Kim Miller, was a classmate of mine back in the day at Potter High School. She was petite and had a pretty pale face, big brown eyes, and long silky black hair she had taken to wearing in a ponytail since she became a deputy in my dad's department. She was smart and funny and attractive. But she was attracted to a certain type of emotionally unavailable men who the more they mistreated her, the greater her need for them grew. The Sports Oasis was a second-story sports bar on Main Street in Pottersville that sat above a florist, a beauty shop, and an antique store. It was large and open and had the feel of a converted warehouse space. Between the long, curving bar on one wall and the stage on the other sat a dance floor and several high-top tables. Across the far wall were three pool tables and four dart machines. Anna Rodden, the one that got away, was across the way with her husband Chris, and I did my best to avoid looking at them and concentrate on the case. But it wasn't easy. I had waved to them from across the room when I first walked in, and planned for that to be my only interaction with them tonight. Kimmy noticed me avoiding looking in their direction and said, That's Anna, isn't it? Used to have a thing for her, didn't you? Yeah, I said with a little smile. Used to. Nothing quite like the pull of the one who got away, she said. I know all about that. And my conclusion on the matter is, unrequited love's a bitch. I nodded and thought about how very right she was, even if mine wasn't exactly unrequited. Anyway, she said, maybe we should go out sometime. We're both sort of single at the moment, aren't we? Sort of, I said. But it wouldn't be fair, knowing we're hung up on other people. Might not be fair, she said, but it would be honest. Besides, who knows? We might just help each other get unhung. Well, since I know no one's ever going to get you unhung from Ace, I said, what can you tell me about the disappearance of Candace Miles? She looked at me for a long moment, her dark eyes locking onto mine, and started to say something, but stopped nodded, and frowned to herself, and took another sip of her drink. I made a copy of the file for you, she said. I hope I don't lose my job over it. I just got it. And your dad seems to like me. Even mentioned making me the school resource officer. That's really what I'd like to do. Being at the school would put you in close proximity to Ace on a daily basis, wouldn't it? Ace Bowman, a coach at the high school, was the main emotionally unavailable man that Kim continued to go back to, no matter how poorly he treated her.
Not unlike working at the prison does you with Anna, she said. Seems we both like our unrequited love with a side of masochism. Unlike some of Kimmy's other men friends, Ace's mistreatment of her was largely of the indifference and neglectful, and not the abusive variety. But I didn't want to think their dynamic was in any way similar to mine and Anna's. I thought that's the only way they served it, I said. Anyway, she said. Candace was a cocktail waitress here a few nights a week. She was pretty popular with the regulars. At least, with the male of the species regulars. She had, or has, big, beautiful, natural tits. And though she didn't exactly whore around, she did dress to highlight the fact. She was attentive and flirtatious in the cocktail waitress sort of way. But from what everyone said, she went right up to the line, but never crossed it. Interesting. How so? She asked. Maybe an unstable regular was unsatisfied with that, I said. His sick psyche felt humiliated, or owed more than the tease, and he grew unhinged and acted. I wonder if the investigator asked around to see if someone was creeping her, she said. Whose case is it? Cecil D's, she said. Then probably not. If he weren't a fishing buddy of your dad's, no way he'd still be an investigator, she said. And it's not that he's incapable of doing a good job. He's just too old and lazy. And I'd really, really just as soon that opinion not get back to your dad? None of this will get back to him, I said. Remember, I'm the one who wanted to meet in secret. I could be asking him all of this. I meant to ask, why didn't you want to talk to him about it? It's complicated. I've been known to grasp a complicated concept or two in my time. I smiled. He's always pressuring me to come work for him. Thinks I'm wasting my talents as a prison chaplain. Just didn't feel like getting into all that again right now. She nodded. I get it. Anyway, Candace's case is a bizarre one. She vanished after working a shift here on a pretty slow Sunday night two weeks ago. As it happens, I was here that night. Sometimes when I can't bear being alone in my empty house another minute, I come here. There were three people working here that night, Candace, Lena, and Kenny. All three are easy to talk to, and I enjoy hanging out here with them, especially on slow nights. Kenny, Lena, and I have the same taste in man. Oh, but don't say anything to Kenny about that. He's not all the way out yet. After their shift ended, the three of them sat for a minute and had a drink. A kind of ritual they have. When they asked her to have another, she said she had somewhere to be. She didn't say where, but didn't sound like to them that it was home with her boyfriend and kids. They finished so fast, I was still in the parking lot by the time they came out. Lena doesn't have a car and had asked Candace if she could give her a ride that night. But Candace asked her if it was okay if Kenny did it, since she was in such a hurry. The three of them pulled out of the parking lot around the same time, though in opposite directions. Kenny headed north toward Lena's place, and Candace headed south, which wasn't in the direction of her place in the Prairie Palm, but none of us thought anything of it at the time. Unfortunately, I was headed in the same direction as Kenny and Lena. I wish I had followed Candace instead. She pulled out first, and we watched her drive away into the darkness. She was never seen again. I looked over at Lena and Kenny behind the bar, but only for a moment, since Anna and Chris were in my line of sight behind them. You remember that old wooden barn out on Highway 73 
Where they would sometimes slaughter cows and hogs? She asked. Near the McCall place. About to collapse at any moment. It's been about to collapse for 20 years, I said. True. Well, anyway, Monday morning her car was found abandoned there. It was at an odd, eerie angle, backed right into the side of the old barn. Unfortunately, the highway patrol officer who saw it and called it in just thought it was a drunk driver who walked away to keep from getting a DUI. He had it towed, essentially contaminating or losing all the forensic evidence it might have contained. I nodded and thought about it. There are so many things off about this case, she said. So many questions. So much suspicious behavior. And get this, the boyfriend never reported her missing. So when we sent an investigator out to their house to ask her about what happened, we thought we'd find her there hungover or something. But when Cecil started talking to Steve about it, that's the boyfriend, he said she never came home the previous night. Something he only realized a little while before when he woke up. Said he fell asleep before it was time for her to be home. We found out later that their little girl, Colby, who is very mature for her age and takes care of the little brother, Cody, had gotten him ready for school and they had gone on their own. They're the reason I'm doing this. They came over this evening and asked me to find their mom. Figures, she said. We've got a couple of witnesses who saw the car not long after Candace left here that night. The three of them pulled out of here at a few minutes after 11, and by quarter after, a man named Lance Stevenson passed by the old barn and saw the car backed into it. Said the headlights were still on, and the left blinker. Said he turned around and drove back to check it out. Got out, looked around. Said it was eerie as hell. Empty car idling in the dark night with no one around. Lights on, blinker blinking. Said he looked all around and called out for the driver. No one ever responded. Never saw anybody or anything suspicious, other than the car. Said he called the sheriff's department and reported it when he drove off. But there's no record of that call. A couple other passersby said they saw just the blinker, and another said they saw just the headlights. No one ever saw Candace again. So whatever happened to her happened fast, I said. Exactly. Anything in her life now, or in her background, that might... From everything we could gather, she seemed to be doing good now. But she did have drug abuse in her background, maybe even a little distributed, but only to support her habit. She got clean for her kids, and it seems she stayed that way. What's the deal with her boyfriend? I asked. He definitely raises some red flags, she said. We've looked at him, but haven't come up with anything so far. Seems more of a deadbeat than anything else. Can't keep a job? Stays high or drunk most of the time. Blames the rest of the world for his failures. Two previous girlfriends filed domestic abuse charges on him, but then recanted. One accused him of child sexual abuse, but the investigation didn't turn up anything, and the investigators concluded that it was just the girlfriend trying to get back at him for something. Was that lazy police work, or actually the case? Honestly? Don't know. Everything I'm telling you is what I've overheard from Cecil and your dad and others around the station, and what's in the file. There's a lot I don't know, but there is one other thing that I do know. A couple of weeks before she disappeared, Candace was assaulted by a young woman named Mason Kelly. Do you know her? I shook my head. If she grew up here, I probably know her family, but I haven't been back long, and her name isn't familiar. She's a piece of work, always on something, always looking for a fight. 
She was in here with her boyfriend. Another real winner. And they were on more than alcohol, but they were on plenty of that. And Mason accused Candace of trying to steal her man. She actually said it like that. Steal her man. I laughed and said, at some point did she start singing to her that she wasn't woman enough to do it? Probably. Anyway, when Candace goes to get in her car after work that night, Mason jumps her and beats her up pretty bad. Two black eyes, cuts, and scrapes on her face. Mason was charged with assault. She bragged to everyone who would listen that nothing would come of it. And since Candace has disappeared, nothing has. I glanced over toward Anna and Chris again to discover that sometime during our conversation, they had gone. And I was grateful they hadn't stopped by our table on their way out. What's her boyfriend's name? I asked. Steve, she said. Steve Roberts. Mason's? Oh, no, sorry. That's Candace's. Mason's is named Kevin Turner. Okay, I said. Thanks. And thanks for the file and all the great info. I really appreciate it. Do anything I can to help those kids get their mom back, she said. And there's more to the story and my involvement. But I think I'll let Lena and Kenny explain that. Five. Half an hour after last call for alcohol, Kimmy and I were sitting with Lena and Kenny at a high-top table not far from where Anna and Chris had been. I still can't believe she's just... gone, Kenny said. I mean, you hear about people vanishing without a trace, but... I don't know. I guess I always thought they were just being dramatic. You know, like on those true crime shows. Kenny St. John's was a tall, thin, mid-twenties man with long, tapered fingers and very large feet. It still doesn't feel real, Lena added. I keep expecting her to walk through that door with one hell of a story. And the more time that passes... Lena Wilder was a late thirties bottle blonde with harsh features, darkish sun-damaged skin, and a low raspy whiskey-cured voice. The three of us, she continued, weren't just co-workers but formed our own little island of misfit toys. I miss her every day, Kenny said. Pick up the phone to call her several times. She was the kind of person you could tell anything. Always listened. Never judged. Ready with a hug or a kick in the seat of the pants. Though barely perceptible, Kenny had the slight hint of a lisp, which became more noticeable the more he spoke, the more he drank, and the later it became. But as bad as I feel for whatever's befallen her, he said, and how bad we miss her, it's her poor kids that most breaks my heart, and I'm genuinely worried for them. Me too, Lena said. She was truly and totally scared. Of Steve? Kimmy asked. Yeah, she said. She was planning on leaving him, Kenny said, and now he's got her kids. How do you know she was going to leave him? I asked. Because we had promised to help her once she was ready, Lena said. Hell, she and the kids were going to live with Kenny and his mom until she could get a place of her own. She had worked so hard to get off the shit, Kenny said. And Steve, who was still on it, was always pressuring her to get high with him. And when she wouldn't, he'd get all aggressive with her, threaten the kids. Could he have found out she was planning to leave? I asked. 
I don't know how, Lena said. We were the only ones she told, and neither of us breathed a word to anyone. Yeah, but she was putting some money away, getting things ready in other ways, Kenny said. Maybe he happened on some of that and found out that way. I would have sworn he did it. But they only had the one vehicle, and they live way out in the Prairie Palm, and he was with the kids that night. He couldn't have gotten to her to do something even if he wanted to. If it wasn't him, I said, who else might it have been? That bitch Mason, Lena said. Or her cute but assholey boyfriend, Kevin Turner, Kenny said. Lena shook her head and contorted her face in disgust. I fucking hate that guy. He's the worst. Anyone else? Lena said. Candace is a looker, you know. Pretty face, great smile, smoking hot body with tits for days. She was hit on a lot. Could be some guy she rejected. There's a county full of them, Kenny said. But a few stick out. He looked around, then leaned in and began to whisper. One is the owner of this particular establishment. He had her in a full court press all the time, and he's used to getting what he wants. He leaned back and raised his voice to a normal level again. There was this dealer, used to be her dealer, was always trying to give her product in exchange for sex. I think his real plan was to get her hooked on it again and make her a sex slave, Lena said. I've heard he's done it before. Gets a girl hooked, uses her up, then sells her to his customers. And then there's creepy Carl, Kenny said. One of our regulars we finally had to ban from the bar he started harassing her so bad. But we always kept an eye out for her, Lena said. There was nobody in the parking lot that night, and when she pulled out onto the road, no one followed her. Okay, I said. We'll follow up on all this. Thank you both. This has been extremely helpful. Oh, we're not done, Lena said. Our story is not over yet, Kenny added. It was something Candace said to me that night, Lena said. She said, no matter what happened or seemed to, she was going to be all right, not to worry about her, that everything she was doing was for her kids, to give them a better life. I asked her what she meant, but that's all she would say. She just said that everything was about to work out for her, that she would be truly free, and her kids would be safe. After Kenny dropped me off, I got in the shower like I always do, and what she said just kept echoing in my head, you know? It was like haunting me or something. When I got out of the shower, I told my roommate something was wrong. I started to call Candace, but since when she left, she didn't head in the direction of home, I didn't want to call and just get Steve all riled up. So I prayed about it, and I knew I had to do something. I called Kenny, woke his mom up. Felt bad about that, but not too bad because I knew something was wrong. I told Kenny what I was feeling. I told her I was feeling the same thing, he said. Women's intuition, girl. It was the first overt reference to being gay he had made. Perhaps, like his lisp, the more he drank and the later it got, the more open and out he became. Anyway, he continued, a few minutes later, I was back at her place picking her up. I called Kimmy, since she had just been here with us, and told her what was going on, and she met us at the bar. 
I had just laid down, but I jumped right back up, Kimmy said. On my way to meet them, I drove by Candace's place to see if she was home yet. She wasn't. Well, her car wasn't. From the bar, Lena said. We headed in the direction she left and just drove around looking for her. Kenny nodded and said, We drove past a few of her friends' places, one of her exes, and even her old dealers. Didn't see her car anywhere. But here's the real kicker. We drove past that old fallen down barn on 73, and I remember looking at it and wondering how it was still standing. Kimmy said, and this was well after Lance Stevenson and the other witnesses said they saw her car with the headlights and left blinker on, backed into the side of the barn. And her car wasn't there, Kenny said. No headlights, no blinker flashing, no car, no car at all. So, Kimmy said, how could Lance and the others see it there before we passed by and the highway patrol find it there the next morning? But it wasn't there when we passed by. Six. When I pulled out of the parking lot of the sports oasis, I turned north in the direction that Candace did the night she disappeared, following the route she had taken toward the old barn. The night was dark and quiet, the rural road empty, the North Florida slash pines lining the road, silent and still. A sharp sliver of moon sliced a small tear in the fabric of the starless sky, while way down here below, the spill of my headlights caused shadows to dance in the ditches. Thirty seconds from leaving the oasis, and I had already cleared the city limits, small town giving way to lonesome highway. Three minutes from leaving town, and I was at the location where her car was discovered. Beyond a leaning fence, its rotting wooden posts sheathed in briars and brambles, and framed by oak trees, their thick, verdant branches hanging low and draped with Spanish moss, a small overgrown livestock pen fronted an ancient, dilapidated, pine-slatted barn with a rusted tin roof. Like the fence, the barn was covered in bushes and vines and was leaning to the left and tilted backward. I parked on the side of the road and got out in the humid night, the sounds of cicadas flooding my ears. Walking across the clay-covered culvert, I made my way toward the barn, tall, damp grass soaking my jeans. Even now, Twin trails of the tall bahia grass were bent and broken from where Candace's car drove across the short, enclosed pasture. When I reached the barn, I stopped and studied the place where her car had backed into the side of the barn, looking at the impact marks. It was dark and hard to see much of anything, but being here gave me a real sense of what it must have been like for her that night. How alone and disoriented and frightened she must have felt. Who led you? like a lamb, to this place of slaughter. How'd he do it? With drugs? Threatening your kids? Promising you the freedom you were longing for? Was this a prearranged meeting place? Or was your crossing with the bad man a chance encounter? Does this place have some significance for the man who did this to you? Or was it just a place of convenience? Why here? Why was your car where it was? Did he do that, or did you? Were you trying to get away? Walking back across the field to my car, I wondered if Candace Miles was still here, buried somewhere on the property with the carcasses of cows and other once-living creatures, 
whose journey stopped abruptly and mercilessly here. As I neared my car, a bright flashlight beam blinded me. Put your hands up, a disembodied male voice in the darkness said. I did. Who are you? He asked. What are you doing here? I told him. Jordan, he said. Any relation to the sheriff? He's my dad. You got ID on you? I do, I said. But I'm not about to reach into my pocket until you turn that light on yourself and show me you're not pointing a weapon at me. He turned the light on himself to show me his hands, and I very slowly and carefully withdrew my wallet and showed him my driver's license. He was a young man with a military haircut and bearing, and a uniform that looked as if he just took it off the ironing board, where he used extra spray starch on it. He told me who he was as he studied my license. He was the highway patrol officer who'd found Candace's car and called it in. He had just been passing by and saw me out here and wondered if I might not be Candace's killer returning to the scene. You think she's dead? I asked. Huh? He said, handing my license back to me. You said you thought I might be the killer returning to the scene. Oh, he said, I guess I do. If you could have seen the way that car was smashed into that barn, it took a brutal, violent force. Like to have never gotten it out. Hadn't really thought about it, but I guess that's why I think she's dead. That, and it's going on three weeks that she's been gone. I nodded and frowned. Hope you're wrong, but I'm afraid you're right. It's partly my fault, he said. I should have never had the car towed before letting forensics process it. No telling what all evidence was lost. If y'all had every car left on the side of the road processed by a crime scene unit, that's all y'all and they would be doing. Yeah, but this one was different. The way I found it, I should have known. I should have... I just screwed up. I didn't say anything. Was hoping you were the killer, and I was going to get to redeem myself, he said. Can't imagine how excited I got when I saw you. Sorry, I said. That you're not the killer? Well, no, not exactly that. Tell you what, he said. You can make it up to me by finding her, preferably alive. 